Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. In our last episode, we examined the broad scope of Scripture, stopping at many texts along the way that teach about a future kingdom when Jesus returns. In this session, we'll take a look at a number of sometimes misunderstood texts that seem to imply that the kingdom is either already present or in heaven. Also, I have a couple of pictures in the show notes for this episode, so you might want to check those out either in your device or at restitutio.org as you listen to this. Here now is episode 167, Theology Class, Part 6, Challenging the Kingdom. We're going to look at the difficult texts about the kingdom of God. And these texts are going to say things like the kingdom of God is not future, so it's only present, or it's going to say it's not on earth, it's it's in heaven, or in your heart, or something like that. I, I, I struggled to come up with a good title for this one, to be honest, but I think it'll become pretty clear what it is I'm saying. If I was going to state the doctrine of the kingdom... Briefly, it would be the kingdom is the age when Jesus rules over the world from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Um, It is present in that his followers already recognize Jesus as king, and we submit to his kingdom way. It's like way of thinking, way of living. Another way to say that, you find a lot of theological textbooks will say it like this, it's inaugurated but not consummated. They use this terminology, already but not yet to refer to the kingdom. It's already here in the sense that the Messiah has already come. He's already been anointed as king. He's already established the uh, lifestyle of the kingdom and his teachings, the Sermon on the Mount in particular. Uh, But yet, it's not consummated. You read the newspaper, it's pretty apparent that God's will is not always being done on earth as it is in heaven. Very good. An engagement before the actual wedding itself. Uh, When it arrives, when the kingdom arrives, it will fill the whole earth, and it will last forever. So that's the basic understanding of the kingdom that you've probably learned in a number of other classes here. If you've taken other classes here, I think you all have taken other classes here. Even you. Not physically, but yeah. (laughs) Still counts. Still counts. The kingdom arrives, it it will fill the whole earth. Amen. How do you see that? How do I see that? The kingdom arriving... Filling the whole earth because I yeah. sometimes I look at that. It's over time, I think. Over time, I think over time. Yeah. I mean, not over time, but the kingdom itself descending. How was that? How do you view that? A kingdom, another earth descending. Well, I don't think of it as another earth. I think of it as Jesus. Okay. Jesus comes and he takes over. Okay. And there's going to be a transition period there. Right, where there be some people opposing him. Yeah, and I imagine a lot of people will oppose him taking over. <laughs> and, he, and just his, how do you even think text says he he descends on the kingdom? He descends to establish the kingdom. To establish the kingdom. Yeah. And his presence here will be stored. And it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while to get things in, in order. It's, but it says after he's submitted, or what is it, subjected all rule and authority... 1 Corinthians 15, 25. He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So that's going to take a time 
for everything to become subjected. Once everything is subjected, everything is, is ready, then God himself. He hands the kingdom over to God himself. Uh, Texas support this teaching. I'm just going to give you a short list because you took too long to write it down last time. So this is, these are my, that's my, this is my super short list. Sorry to the people that were here this morning for the other class because these are <laughs> pretty much the same verses. Matthew, uh, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, 18, 22, 27, Matthew 5, 5. I like 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 3. I think that's a good one. And uh, if I was going to pick a fourth, it would be Revelation 11, 15 to 18. You're probably already familiar with these verses. You've probably heard them a million times. I've got like, I don't know, 40 others here on my page, but I'm not trying to stress you guys out. So Now let's look at difficult texts. The first uh, classification are uh, texts that say the kingdom is already here. Okay, the kingdom is already here. And we've got a number of uh, verses under that one. We've got Luke 10, 9. We've got 11, 20, 17, 20, 31. And Matthew 24. Yeah, this is the Olivet Discourse. 29 to 34. Oh, it's really 34 is the, the specific verse. Yeah, and this, this, hold on, let me correct this here. It's really Luke 17, 21 that matters. I should just give you the actual verse, not the whole section, pericope. Um, and then you have Matthew 16, 28, which is the one that uh, Dan mentioned this morning. And then we have, so that's one classification of verses. And then we have our other classification, which is uh, the kingdom is in heaven. And uh, we find under this category, John 14, 1 to 3, John 18, 36, Luke 23, 43. So these are our texts for consideration for the next hour or so. We'll just kind of work through them one at a time. But just so you have them in your notes, this is what we're going to be working through. Let's take a look at the first one. First one first, uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 9, and it says, Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Why would this be a difficult verse? Present, or past tense, the kingdom has come. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of weird, right? The other one that goes along with that is Luke eleven twenty, which says, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If the kingdom is the time when Jesus rules over the world from the throne of David, how can we say that it has come upon you? What, how do we make sense of that? The king is here. It's not either or, it's both and. Okay, yeah. Much like a diplomat, you know, like America is here, you know, in whatever country they're in, you know, relatively speaking. Canada is here. Because in a sense, yeah. <laughs> not really. I mean, you don't represent the government, but... If you're higher, I would say Canada's here. Yeah, even in a smaller sense than like yeah. Trudeau coming. Oh, you wouldn't want that. No, no I wouldn't. Want that. Yeah. <laughs> and what country are you from? Kenya. Mm-hmm. So Kenya's here. Canada's here. No, Kenya's not here. The ambassador of Kenya is here. <laughs> the United States is here. Yeah, yeah I, I think that that can work. So you're saying that Jesus, as the King, represents the kingdom itself. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and what he's doing. If Jesus is in proximity, 
then the kingdom is in proximity. Yeah, the reason why I said the ambassador, even Jesus was sent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he was sent. So right. The kingdom is there. Yeah. yeah. I think that's good. I think your other point is good too, Daniel. You said in the ministry or in his actions, right? So in the ministry of Jesus, he's, he's embodying the kingdom. A kingdom styled. He, right. He smells like the kingdom. <laughs> That's not really the way, right way to say it. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, what I mean by that is that, not literally, he's, he, there's a smell, but what, what I mean by that is, like, if you talk to him, the way he talks, what he talks about, is, is very kingdom-focused. What he does, whether it's teaching on how to live, that's the lifestyle that will be in the kingdom. If he's preaching, he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. If he's prophesying, he's prophesying about the kingdom. If he is healing people in the kingdom, there is no more sickness or brokenness. So he's restoring, he's bringing restoration that we see, we'll see in the kingdom. If he's calling judgment down on people, that's the sort of thing that will happen when the kingdom arrives. Right? So his ministry is saturated with the kingdom. He's the king. It makes perfect sense that if the spirit of God, which is uh, what Matthew says instead of the finger of God, is at work, that it is a kingdom activity. Uh, so, yeah, I think both and instead of either or is the, uh, the solution here. But what about when he says the kingdom of God is within you? This is Luke seventeen twenty one. And it said, well, I'll start in verse 20. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Ah, what does that mean? That was my translation <laughs> You see how I did that? So uh, that's the first point. What Josiah just said. This is a bad translation, in fact. This is the New King James. It's not a uh, preferred way of translating this. Uh, Here are a bunch of translations. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, The kingdom is among you. The ESV, the kingdom is in the midst of you. Uh, The King James is within you. The NAB, which is the Catholic Bible, New American Bible, For behold, the kingdom of God is among you. New American Standard, kingdom is in your midst. Um, the NET, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The NIV even gets it right. Uh, kingdom of God is in your midst. It's only the King James and the New King James that say it's within you. Okay? And uh, I've got this really great quote by Albert Nolan on this one that I want to share with you. So this is a guy named Albert Nolan. He's a Catholic priest who was active in apartheid, like bringing apartheid to an end in South Africa. And he's a Bible scholar. Many Christians have been misled for centuries about the nature of God's kingdom by the well-known mistranslation of Luke 17, 21. The kingdom of God is within you. Today, all serious scholars and translators agree that the text should be read, the kingdom of God is among you or in your midst. The Greek word entos mm-hmm. can mean within or among, but in the present context, to translate it within would mean that in answer to the Pharisees' question about when the kingdom of God would come, 1720, Jesus told them that the kingdom of God was within them. This would contradict everything else Jesus ever said about the kingdom or about the Pharisees. Moreover, since every other reference to the kingdom pre- presupposes, presupposes that it is yet to come, and since the verb and every other clause in this passage 
17, 20 through 37, is in the future tense. This verse must be understood to mean that one day they will find that the kingdom of God is suddenly and unexpectedly in their midst. Okay, uh, so that's a good clarifying point there. And then, uh, like Daniel mentioned earlier, another option is that since uh, Jesus is standing right there, you know, the kingdom's in their midst. You know, he's standing right, you're looking at the kingdom, guys. Hello? <laughs> Do you not see you're talking to the king himself? And uh, so the, the rest of this whole section really turns on this way of understanding it. For example, it says, The Pharisees were asking Jesus, when is the kingdom going to come? They want a sign. Jesus is, is anti-sign. He's not going to do a trick to get these guys to believe, because he knows it's not going to work anyhow. It's a setup. He's like, look, the kingdom's in your midst, man. I mean, that's it. I mean, in John, they're like, what are you doing to show us that you have the authority to do these things? It's like, I've been showing you all along. It's not going to make a difference. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, he goes on and he turns to the disciples in verse 22. Now he's talking to the disciples, so he's going to be a little more open. He says, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. You will not see it. They will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus is like, Look, when it comes, it's going to, you're going to notice it. It's, it's going to be obvious, just like lightning lights up the whole sky. It's going to be obvious. Then this, this next one here, Matthew 24, just read verse 34 there. <laughs> Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. These things? How many things? All these. All these things. There you go. So Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now what he had been talking about in the context here is some serious like end of the world stuff. Uh, so, Dan, can you read us just like right from 29? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree it blossoms as soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves. You know summer is that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gate. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So all the things he's talking about involves, or includes, verse 29, the tribulation, the darkening of the sun, verse 30, the appearance of the Son of Man, the mourning of the tribes of the earth, uh, the Son of Man coming in clouds, he's sending out his angels in verse 31 with the trumpet call, all these things, he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So, what do you guys say to that one? This generation that Jesus is talking about is the generation that's going to go through all of these things, not necessarily the generation that he's speaking to at that specific time. Yeah, that's one of the options. What else? I've heard the explanation that it's uh, this people. So 
I've never verified that in South Bend. Yep, that's another explanation, that it's a race of people. Then the third option is that this generation refers to his original disciples. Right, right, so that's another way people understand this. A fourth option is that Jesus is a false prophet, and he's making stuff up, and he got it wrong. You know, obviously, we're Christians, we're not going to go for that option. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's another you know, explanation that people have, uh, especially uh, non-Christians. But looking at the other three options there, you've got that this generation refers to the original disciples, the generation he's talking to, he's looking at. And there's a view called preterism, and that's the idea that uh, these things have already taken place. A person who believes that is a preterist. <laughs> and uh, so a very famous preterist with respect to Matthew 24 is N.T. Wright. In his commentary, he takes this as already having been fulfilled. And uh, he takes things a little bit metaphorically and symbolically rather than literally. Um, and yet he still believes Jesus will come back and he still believes there will be a kingdom. But he thinks that this has already, this part of Matthew 24 has already taken place. So to be a preterist doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad guy or you're an unbeliever. It just means that you have a way of thinking about this that's historical rather than futurist-oriented. The uh, option that generation really means race, that's the position that Anthony Buzzard officially takes. Um, and that's the idea that the Jewish race will not pass away or the, you know, the, these kind of people, not necessarily a race, but like um, maybe like skeptic, skeptical unbelieving type, they're not going to pass away until all these things take place. And then the third option, which, uh, which I prefer, and um, Kyle apparently as well, is that this generation that Jesus is referring to is the generation living when these signs occur. So like verse 32, from the fig tree learn its lesson, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So the generation that sees the stuff he's already said before this, I realize we don't have time to like read the whole of Matthew 24, but like earlier on in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about how there are going to be false Christs, how there's going to be persecution, how there are going to be wars and rumors of wars, and there's going to be earthquakes. You know, he mentions a bunch of different things that happen, and then he specifically singles out the abomination of desolation as an event that occurs prior, I think that's 14, verse 14, prior to verse 29, which is where the Son of Man returns. So the generation that sees that stuff happen is the fig tree generation, and he's saying this generation will not pass. So from the time you see the A of D, the abomination of desolation in verse 14, until it's all fulfilled, that it's all one generation, which is you know roughly 40 years, 20, 40 years. I don't know. What's the generation? Millennials? 1980 to 2000, so 20 years. I don't know. The generations might have been different than ours. Like how is this a difficult text? Well, if you believe that uh, the kingdom is a spiritual reality that came oh, in full force on Pentecost, uh, then you would use this text to say, this generation that Jesus is talking to won't pass away till the kingdom comes. Because all that stuff because spiritual. yeah, because and yeah, and they would say this is all a, a, what we call a spiritualist interpretation. I like uh, Craig Keener; he's a New Testament scholar. Old Testament prophets often grouped events together by their topic rather than their chronology, and in this discourse, Jesus does the same. 
He addresses what are grammatically two separate questions, the time of the temple's destruction and the time of the end. And so what Keener sees in Matthew 24 is Jesus mixing together some events that have already taken place and some events that are yet future. And he's like, this is what prophets, Hebrew prophets typically did. They organized by topic, not time, chronology. Sir, when I preached on this uh, passage, I don't know, probably a couple of years ago, I sort of went that way. And uh, the example was when, I think when God told Hezekiah, was it, that he was going to die? Or who, who was the person that... Yeah. He was going to die, but then 15 years was added. So prophecy can sort of be delayed. Right. And so there's a way to, it's not, I'm not, it's not totally satisfying, but there's a way to look at it. Where some of this stuff definitely what did happen in the first century, but then obviously his return didn't happen. But that's because right. it's been delayed. Okay. There's a delay to that prophecy. Right, right. We call that the postponement theory. Postponement, okay. Yeah, that's okay. the postponement theory. So that's the idea that uh, in his ministry, and we, I didn't really get into a lot of preterist texts, but there are quite a few in the Gospels and in, and in some other places, corners of the New Testament, where it says the kingdom of God is at hand. Came about, it's, it's like Jesus is saying it's like about to arrive, yeah. right? And so the, the postponement theory is it was about to arrive, but the people rejected Jesus, so it got postponed until the fullness of the Gentiles could come in. So it's like just one way of like packaging the whole thing up. It kind of works for me, but yeah, yeah, I, I I find it attractive as well. Another way of saying is that the kingdom did come, but it, it came in judgment on Jerusalem in seventy A.D. and that's the classic preterist view. It doesn't anti right advocate that, that, or a lot of preterists will say that. As you just said. Yeah, yeah, that's a typical... I don't know about N.T. Wright, but that's... A, yeah, that is, that is what N.T. Yeah. NT Wright says. He says that um, there was an abomination of desolation that happened in the late 60s, and then it led to the destruction of the temple. Uh, but it's, it's really weak. That's flipping the, the, the idea of the Messiah coming on its head. Because the, when the Messiah comes... Good things are supposed to happen. Right, good things happen too, not just the destruction of Jerusalem, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, all right, so... Then we have the other text that uh, we saw earlier today, uh, right, Dan? Uh, you won't taste death till you see the coming, the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Some people say, okay, this said, Bart Ehrman famously says that this means that Jesus thought the kingdom was going to come in His own lifetime, and he's a, he, he died, and isn't it so sad? He's a false prophet. All right, well, I'm not going to go down that road with Bart, but I will say this, that in all the places where this saying occurs. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Happens three times. The next verse is always talking about the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration. So this is Matthew. You see that six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and went up to the mountain. It says he was transfigured, his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to to them Moses and Elijah. And Peter said, Lord, it's good that we're here. Let's make a tent. And uh, then God speaks and he says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then Jesus, verse 6, The disciples heard this. They fell on their faces. They were terrified. Verse 7, Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So they had this vision. It was a vision of a glorified Jesus of a resurrected Moses, resurrected Elijah, because I'm assuming that because they're dead. So if they're presented as alive, they've been resurrected. Okay, so that's my assumption. But it's a vision of what the kingdom would be like. I mean, you think about it, Elijah is like the definitive 
Old Testament prophet. And Moses is, I mean, Moses is Moses. You know, he's, he's, he's the one who gave the law, the Torah, the covenant. He's the mediator. And so you have Jesus, who in himself is the quintessential Moses and the quintessential Elijah with Moses. In, I mean, it's just a magnificent moment. And uh, you can see Peter's just sort of like tripping over himself. Like, hey, let's build some tents for these guys. I don't understand that. But uh, that's what he, he said. It actually says like he doesn't know what he was talking about. Oh, it's not in this one. It's in a different... It's in Mark, where it says, like, he was, like, overwhelmed or something. <laughs> Peter was. Okay, so... How does, I've heard this as well, but how does the, tr- the transfiguration fulfills the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? Because, like, Moses and Elijah were there, and that represents the kingdom, or exactly how does that work? So you're saying it definitively is Jesus coming into his kingdom? Is that what you're saying? No, no, he's saying, like, uh, how does it how does it make sense? Yeah, how does the transfiguration fulfill that the Son of Man is coming in this kingdom? If like if we're going to use this uh, reason, here's a here's an interesting commentary on that. This is Second Peter one sixteen. This is where Peter is years later recalling what it was like when they saw him on the mountain. And Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So that's interesting. Like he calls the trans, you'll see in a second he's talking about the transfiguration, but he calls it his majesty. Uh, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. And, you know, he kind of goes on from there. But um, referring back to this incident years later, and it's, you can see there's a little more theology built around it to understand it. And there's this idea of glorification. Now, if you look at Jesus in his ministry, he is not glorified. He is re- regularly challenged. He is regularly ridiculed and people persecute him and they call him working by Beelzebul. You know, there's all this like antagonism towards Jesus. You look at his suffering, he's whipped, he's beaten, he's brutalized, he's murdered, right? He's executed unjustly. That's not glory. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, maybe theologically you can get there, but like just from a physical external point of view, you'd be like, this is, this is tragedy, not glory. And uh, so in his resurrection, you know, there's the glory of the resurrection, but he, he does still just like look like a regular person. The, he, they see this vision of him fully glorified. And it's interesting, too, because when you look at uh, the description of it, it said, this is the Mark version, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Isn't that interesting? So, like, Jesus, like, was, tra- that's what transfiguration means. Like, he was transfigured, transformed. His appearance changed before them. They had this incredible vision of Jesus, and he's talking with Elijah and Moses, and he wants to build them a tent. So, like, I, I'm not saying I have the whole thing figured out, Kyle. I don't know why he wants to build a tent. Um, verse 6, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So it was an awesome scene. There was a lot of glory and I, I take it as Jesus is like some of you who are standing here are not going to taste death till you see the kingdom. You know, and they saw the kingdom. It was a vision of the kingdom. It wasn't the kingdom come in all its glory, but it was like 
an aspect of what it'll be like. You look at the description of Jesus in Revelation 19. When he's coming back, it's, it, there's a lot of like glory, splendor. Um, what does it say? Like his eyes are a flame of fire. and You know what I mean? It, there's just like a transformed physical appearance. What were you going to say? I think we get hung up on the word co- the Son of Man coming in his kingdom or however it's put, right? We think the totality of, of the kingdom, but it's just... Yeah, they're just going to see. They're going to see it. You know, of course, the word see in Greek, just like in English, means believe, see, as in perceive with your mind. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be there before you die. All right, well, let's press on to the next one. Did I mention I don't have all the answers? I'm probably going to say that a bunch this week. Why am I in this class? My strategy for this class is that it would be interactive... I want you all to participate. If you have something to say, I want you to say it, whether it's a solution or an added problem. I prefer solutions, honestly, because then we're sort of like working towards the same goal, but uh, I also don't want you to be stifled if you want to bring up something else. Um, and the goal is that like together we can, we can wrestle with these verses and you can, you can sort of like sharpen your ability to not be freaked out when you see verses that are challenging and sort of like develop your ability to work it all together, what you already know with what might challenge what you already know. And, and some of these are just like really easy, and some of them you have like a few options, and it's like none of them maybe fully satisfy you. But if you think about like going to the opposite side, you're going to have so many more difficult verses to deal with. So you want to be on the side with fewer difficult verses, obviously. All right, so now let's look at some that... People sometimes use to say the kingdom is in heaven. The first one is the many mansions saying. The second one is the my kingdom is not of this world. And then the third is today you'll be with me in paradise, those three. So uh, we kind of covered these in the kingdom of God class anyhow, but we'll, we'll just cruise through here. John 14 is the first one up to bat. And Josiah, could you read 14, 1 through 3? Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. All right, so some say these rooms in verse 2 here are dwelling places in heaven where the faithful go at death. Do you see how people might get that point of view? Yeah. So what do you think? This is a real difficult one. Okay. It says, uh, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And it, it just uh, the way you read it, it just seems like, well, he's going to heaven and that's where he's preparing the place, so he's going to take us there. Well, obviously Jesus is a carpenter, so he's up in heaven with a hammer <laughs> and he's building rooms onto the Father's mansion and you die, you go live in one of those rooms, right? There's people that believe that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not. But uh, maybe not literally with a hammer, but... Uh, um, yeah, there's a lot of people that believe this This gives evidence for going to heaven at death. The first verse here is pretty irrelevant, so I'm going to just skip that. Just go right to verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. It's interesting, this word rooms here is, uh, is a word that shows up a lot in this chapter. It's a word for abode or dwelling place. It's uh, mone. The way it's used throughout the discourse, the Last Supper discourse, you have chapter 14, which is what we're in right now, then you have 15 and 16, so it's three chapters, and 17 is the prayer, and 13 is the washing of the feet. So you really have five chapters of John where it's like the Last Supper. 
Chapter 13, he washes the feet. You have some dialogue there. 14 through 16 is the main teaching part. And then chapter 17 is the prayer. So in 14 through 16, you see this like dwelling business a lot. In fact, John 15 is the famous uh, parable of the vine and the branches. And he said, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will have bear much fruit, right? So ab- abiding and dwelling is all throughout this discourse. And it, it, it's not talking about a bedroom. It's talking about a spiritual reality. So I think that's helpful. If you read the rest of this to, to recognize Jesus is not, he's not being super, lit- like he's using a figure, but it's also not clear what my father's house is. Typically, my father's house is a reference to what? Temple. The temple. Jesus says, why are you making my father's house a den of thieves, right? Den of robbers, bandits, low lives. Um, and so uh, it could be a temple, you know, it could be heaven, although I don't know if there's any other place that refers to this as heaven. In verse 10 of this chapter, yeah. the word abiding, is that the same word at near the end of the verse? Y- yeah, yeah, it's, it's, so, a, it's a form of the same word. I mean... I mean, if we're just taking context from a later chapter, like later in the chapter, you know, from the same author, it just doesn't seem consistent to, to take it as a literal place. Right, right. That's, that's my whole point. Yeah, John 14.10, you have it, 14.17, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Same chapter. Verse 24, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. Now, this is Jesus talking about actually physically being there with them. So the word goes both ways. But then you look at all these references in chapter 15. A lot of abide business going on. This is the parable I was telling you about before of the uh, vine and the branches. Abide in me, I in you, and yada, yada, yada. So this word abide is all over the place in the Last Supper discourse. And every other place, except for maybe the, the, this one right here where Jesus says, I'm abiding with you, it's always this like spiritual reality of fellowship with God of recognizing that God is dwelling in you, you're dwelling in God, and His words are in you, and that sort of thing. Another way to think about it is right here where it says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. This could be referring to the second coming. Okay? And so He prepares a place for you. You can think of that as physical. But I don't think that's really the best way to think about it because... Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, is usually talking metaphorically about things. He's talking on a spiritual level. You interpret him on a physical level, you're going to miss it. You're going to be like the Pharisees. So if Jesus is saying, I go to prepare a place for you, if he's not talking about a physical place, he could be talking about a position, a place of authority. Now combine that with the fact that when Jesus comes in Matthew 25, another place that talks about Jesus coming, Matthew 25, verse 31, he says... For the, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, then all the nations will be gathered before Him as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And to the sheep He will say, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the beginning of the world. And so God has been preparing the kingdom from the beginning of the world. Jesus is now our advocate, our mediator. He's going to the right hand of the Father. He's preparing places for His people. So that when he comes again, he will receive us to himself. Not in heaven. He's coming again. We're going to meet him. He's going to receive us, 
right, in the air, but then it's to assist him or escort him uh, down to the kingdom. Any other thoughts on this one? Later in, the, uh, just a couple of verses later, Thomas is like, uh, What are you talking where, about? Where are you going? Yeah, we have no idea what you're talking about. And, uh, <laughs> so first of all, we're in good company, but uh, Jesus said, uh, you, you know where, where the way to where I'm going? It's me. I, and the, and the, the, way, the way to what? To God. And so God is not a place. So if God is not a place, but he's talking about going, that's where he's going and he's the way, well, then the whole thing can be, obviously, as you're saying, not literal or physical, right. but a spiritual reality. Right. So if God's house is spiritual and not literal, he's going to prepare a place. Jesus is coming back, we know, to establish God's kingdom. Yeah, so he says that where I am, you may be also. I mean, how many texts do we have in the Bible that tell us that where Jesus is going to be is in Zion, is in Jerusalem, is in, you know, on the earth ruling? You know, there are many verses about that. Isaiah 11, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, many other prophecies. So we know where Jesus is ultimately going to end up. I mean, if you want to go to heaven, I don't know. But Jesus is going to be here. (laughs) So if you want to be where he is, you want to be here. All right, two more quickies. John uh, 18. Well, couldn't you have both if you say, I go to heaven and then I'm going to come back? Yeah, I guess you could have both. Yeah, the hybrid view. All right, John 18, 36. And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world or from this world. D- different translations do that differently. It's funny, because like in this one here, he says, of, and then down here, he says, from. So what's the deal with that? The NASB says, my kingdom is not of this realm. Oh, it is a different word. I don't think I have a way of explaining the difference to you, other than to say it is a different word, but it, it has basically the same meaning. The, the translation for this first part, my word kingdom were of this world, is the word ek, E-K, epsilon, kappa, and uh, so where we typically, when we do prepositions, we use this to represent ek. This is ek. You're going out from the circle. As opposed to, this would be is. It's going into the circle. Ek is going out of the circle. Right? So if this is, if this is the earth right here, you know, maybe I could draw some continents on here, some ocean. All right, so if this is earth, Jesus is saying my kingdom is not ek. It's not from this earth. Does that make sense? So it's the kingdom is from, it's from heaven. It's derivative. Right. That's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's not derived. That's, that's a good word. It's not derived from earth. It's derived from God, from, from heaven. Go ahead, Daniel. Oh, I just have an alternative. Uh, Go for it. Is the word in Greek here, the, the world, also the same word for age? Uh, I don't think so. Because if it is, then that... No, it's cosmos. Aeon is the word for age. So that, that's not, that's not going to work. But the word world in the Gospel of John is typically... Talking about the distinction between this age and the age to come. N.T. Wright says the following. Uh, Stefan, could you read this right here, this quote? The world as we have seen again and again in John, the source of evil and rebellion against God... All right, you catch that? So the world is not necessarily a reference to the planet in the Gospel of John. It's the planet in rebellion against God. In John, we find other places where Jesus says, the world's going to hate you. Does that mean the planet's going to hate you? 
No, it's the rebellious people on the planet are going to hate you. Right? So it's not just a neutral term for geography. That's actually uh, this word, yis, uh, like G-E-S. It's where we get the word geography from. Uh, you use that to refer to the actual planet. Cosmos is, is like the world as it's presently ordered. And then aeon is the word that means age, this present age. Okay, so does that help at all? Okay. Uh, keep going, Stefan. Jesus is denying that his kingdom has that his kingdom has a this worldly origin or quality. He is not denying that it, it has a this worldly destination. That why he has come into the world himself and why he has sent will send his followers into the world. His kingdom does not come from this world, but it is for this world. Oh, I love that. Look at this, that. That is the crucial destination. Man, I, 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 I missed the word world there. Sorry about that. All right, this line right here, I think that's, that's worth my money for this quote. His kingdom doesn't come from this world, but it is for this world. I once heard N.T. Wright say it like this, and I could never find it after the, after the fact. Uh, but I listened to him for many hours, so it might have been just like an audio th- memory. Um, he said it like this. If your friend comes over, you say to him, uh, there's beer in the fridge. Assuming that you drink beer, okay? I'm not trying to make anyone under 21 feel uncomfortable. But he's British. British people drink beer, okay? It's not a big deal. And... He says, hey, the beer's in the fridge. He does not imply that you have to go into the fridge to drink the beer. You heard that before, right? And I think Anthony mentioned that. Right, Anthony mentioned that. Right, you don't need to go into it. It's just like, think of it like this. You retire. You don't have to move into the bank when you retire. I know your money's in the bank. I know your investments are in the bank, whatever. But you don't need to move into the bank to get it. You know what I mean? So heaven is a storehouse. It's a place where the kingdom is stored until the time when it can be uh, used. It's used for the earth. It's used on the earth. So that, I don't know, that I found helpful at some point. Um, the next one here is, uh, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? All about the commas. All about the commas. All right, run us through the uh, comma explanation just in case everyone hasn't already heard that one. Go ahead, Josiah. Read us 42 and 43 and explain it. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. But put the comma before today, it makes it sound like he's speaking of this current day in which he was, they were talking. Um, but that is not there in the Greek. There are no commas. There, yeah, as it turns out. So if you say, put the comma after today, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. As of today, I promise that you're going to be with me sometime in paradise. I say to you today, as opposed to I'm saying to you. Yeah, I say, right, today, I'm telling you this. Right, right. I'm telling you today, in the future, you'll be with me in paradise. Right, or right, I'm telling right. you right now, you're going to be yeah, with like, me in paradise today. Are you like, Jesus is saying, I, I'm declaring, you can like, to use that expression, take it to the bank today. Like, you can trust me today. It's not just something that you can... You know, I, I met this guy in Seattle once who had a facsimile of an ancient Greek manuscript. And I think it was probably Sin- Sinaiticus. And um, 
He's like, yo, there's a comma there, man. I'm like, there's no comma there. And he showed me like this. <laughs> Seriously, like on the manuscript, he showed me like, there's a comma, look. The... And like in his, his copy of it, there really was like a little smudge, like right there. And I'm like, is that really a comma? And uh, yeah, someone probably put it there. I don't, remember, I don't remember what manuscript he had, whether it was Vaticanus oh, or. Go back. There looks like a little comma. Yeah, there's a little comma there. Uh, and he said to him, Amen to you, I say. So this is where the con- Oh, look, there is, right there, a little smudge. That's hilarious. Yep. It must, okay, so this is Codex Vaticanus. It's a very famous Greek manuscript. That right there, where my finger is, is a smudge after the word today. Well, that's okay. uh, so, you know, hey, if the Catholics kept this, it was Vaticanus, kept at the Vatican. If the Catholic manuscript has a comma after today, I mean, that is yeah. just. Well, look at it compared to all the other commas. Yeah, like. What are uh, those markings? The, these, this is not, I don't know what that is. That's not. This thing above the T here, T's don't get accents in Greek, period. So I don't know what that is. This sure looks like a comma over here, right? This is a normal accent right there. That's a normal accent. This is these are normal accents. Go after the Y over there, above the H. That's weird. Oh, that probably goes to the H. Yeah. yeah no, that would be normal. Pretty limited. But yeah. When, when and a lot of times, but this thing is not. There's no vowels around. So I mean, maybe that really is a comma in Vaticanus. I don't know. Like, this is this is a picture of no, the no, actual. I mean, this manuscript is uh, is it a copy? Fourth century. Fourth century copy. Yeah, fourth century. Vaticanus oh. is the three hundreds, and so is uh, Sinaiticus. Uh, those are the two biggest like complete New Testaments we have that are early. There are like short little scraps of paper that are before this, but you'd have to find one that has this part of Luke on it. And you'd have to probably go to a bunch of museums to, well, you can look it up online, but you'd have to go to a museum or go to uh, Daniel Wallace because he has pictures of everything. Here's how I, I just wanted to show you that because it's so like tantalizing. I'm not betting the house on that one. Okay. So you've got these two criminals. They're on the cross. One is, is being mean to Jesus and the other one rebukes him. And uh, he says to the other guy, look, we're being punished for what we did wrong. This guy never did anything wrong. And then he says to Jesus, verse 42, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This initial statement by the thief means everything for understanding this. It sets up everything. His whole point is, I believe the sign that says you're the Messiah, and I'm asking that when you come into your kingdom, you will remember me. That's the whole question. Or not question, that's the whole request. And then Jesus says, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It makes perfect sense. He's giving him a free pass not to paradise some like nebulous, like float on a cloud kind of thing. But he's saying paradise as in the kingdom. I'm already telling you now. I don't need to wait till then to remember you. I'm going to remember you right now. You're going to be with me in paradise. So um, just a couple of quick texts that will help you defend this point of view. John 20, 17, Jesus said to Mary Magdalene, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So this is after the resurrection. So Jesus dies. He gets buried. He gets raised from the dead. He sees Mary Magdalene. She grabs him. He says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So was Jesus a liar? No, Jesus is not a liar. He was in the, he was in the earth. 
right? He was in the heart of the earth, is what another scripture says. So you can't say paradise is in heaven, and Jesus and the thief both went to heaven when they died, because Jesus in John twenty seventeen says, I have not yet ascended to the Father. Or this other one here, Matthew uh, twelve forty. this is a prophecy. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in heaven. Hmm. No, it doesn't say heaven there. It says in the heart of the earth. So now we're going to say that paradise is in the heart of the earth. Come on, let's just move the comma. Everything works out, and we don't have absurdities left over. Context is king. I have a quick question. Yeah. So, like, uh, the, I've heard that, yeah, there's, like, no punctuation in the original Greek manuscripts. Is there, is there punctuation, punctuation marks in the Greek language, or just not? Yeah. So mm-hmm. why was there not any in the original? I don't think they were around yet. I mean, the thing is, too, like when you're looking at this manuscript here, Codex Vaticanus, you're, you're seeing a lot of uh, punctuation, basically. Yeah. Um, but these, these are, this, first of all, this is the 4th century, so this is not like, the New Testament is 300 years old by the time this thing has come out. Second of all, a lot of times in these manuscripts you have later scribes adding things in. Like, for example, uh, Sinaiticus, which is traditionally represented by the, uh, the Hebrew letter Aleph, has, uh, I don't even remember how many, like, they, like, scholars that, you know, they study these, like, pieces of paper, and they're like, all right, so we can tell from this ink, the color of it, the handwriting style, that this is the original scribe who wrote the New Testament. And then this little footnote on the side, we know that this one comes from this year because of the way he forms his letters, right? And so they have, like, four or five scribes that they find in this one document. And so you have one that writes the block letters, and then, you know, what's this over here? What's, what's that doing there? You know what I mean? And then you, you find, like, little... Uh, this is not really a great example. I'll show you a, a better example. We'll get to this example later on. First uh, Timothy 3.16. All right, so look at that right there. This is, this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. So... Uh, this says mystery here, mysterion. I don't know if you can see that or not. And then you have os right here, O-C, but the C is just like an old-fashioned S. Uh, so that says os. And then right above it, it says, uh, that's a theta and then a sigma. So it says theos. And so the original says os, and then a later scribe wrote in right above it the word theos. And that's how we get this manuscript uh, corruption that comes in later manuscripts where they copy Theos instead of Os. We'll look at it later. I'll explain it. But my point is, in a manuscript, you'll have later scribes that will insert stuff in, and some of the stuff they insert in might be uh, punctuation sometimes. But the earlier stuff doesn't have punctuation. It's just all... It's like this. Capital block letters, save space, space costs money. You know, because this is like part of an animal skin that's been prepared for this. It's not papyrus. Uh, generally, papyrus doesn't last that long unless you live in a desert like Egypt. This is parchment. This is from an animal. Uh, very, very expensive. And it took a lot of animals, too, you know, to make one scroll. All right, so that's it for, for now. We'll take our quiz before you, uh, your eyes get too heavy on me. Well, that's it for this episode. Just to let you know, if you haven't listened to previous episodes, they are available on the podcast feed as well as online at restitudio.org where you can also leave a comment for this episode if you would like to add any suggestions or ask any questions. On the episode from last week, a number of people have written in. Kevin G. writes, This was an excellent summary of the subject. Thank you. I would just like to add that my explanation of Philippians one twenty three, Depart and be with Christ, 
is to point out that Paul was in prison. Compared to today, those prisons were more like dungeons. They were filthy with the expected stench and disease. And prisoners were underfed and suffered extremes of heat and cold. Under such miserable conditions with no expectation of being released soon, it is easy to see how death can be a welcome delivery from the situation. For Paul in that dungeon, it was far better to depart and be with Christ in the resurrection than to suffer like that. But his conclusion is found in the next verse. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Given the context of the writing of the epistle, there is no need to read into Paul's statement about departing as referring to entering into some intermediate state of bliss. No, Paul was just considering his options from his immediate context. Chuck Lamatina also writes in on the same text. He says, A number of years ago I came across this study on Philippians that may be helpful. He makes a point that the word depart is analeo, which can also be translated in the emphatic diaglot as return. And he says, quote, Paul did not expect to depart for heaven immediately upon his death. Philippians one twenty three therefore, does not relate to Paul's departure at his demise, but rather to the returning of Christ at his second advent to claim his church. So that is a uh, another theory that's out there. He continues a little later, The Apostle Paul's unflagging confidence in a future resurrection from, from death as the basis of his hope to be with the Lord at the second advent is well supported by other scriptures. It is for this reason that he wrote, in Philippians one twenty three, that being with Christ was far better than the other two alternatives, even though he would have to wait in the sleep of death for such deliverance. Surely the apostle's state of mind when he penned these words was, I will neither murmur nor repine at what the Lord's providence may permit, because faith can firmly trust him, come what may. And then also Candace writes in on the same episode saying, What do the proponents of immortality of the soul say about the sleep passages? How did David sleep if his soul rose to heaven and his body decayed in the ground? Other verses can also be critiqued in the same way. Let me make just a couple of comments here. On Kevin G's point about the prison conditions, I think he's absolutely right about that, in that going on living in deplorable conditions... Uh, is is and, and hardship is not preferred, and that uh, just going to sleep and awaiting the return of Christ is far better than eking out an existence in a dungeon awaiting execution. That's that's no way to live. So I think uh, from a context perspective, Kevin G's got a, a great point there. On Chuck's point that this could refer to, this is probably really from Benjamin Wilson because he's the one behind the emphatic diaglot way back in the 1800s, that this could refer to the return of Christ. I'm not really sure how that would work in light of just the the grammar here. He says, "My, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, or... My desire, if you want to translate it as return, which is a legitimate tr- uh, definition of this word, my desire is to return and be with Christ, for that is far better. This is Paul returning, not Christ returning, so I'm not I'm not sure how he handles that. On Candace's point, I don't really know what the immortality of the soul people say. I think they say that the body is asleep while the soul is awake, but uh, sadly the Bible does not 
make this big distinction found all over our culture today that dead people that there are no dead people there are just dead bodies and uh we we find a sterling example of that with Mary when she's seeking Jesus the deceased Jesus she doesn't say tell me where his body is to the one she believes is the gardener she says tell me where you have laid him that I may take him away she looks at the dead person as still the person not not just part of the person while the rest of the person is living on somewhere else now this doesn't necessarily destroy all possible forms of dualism uh it, it could just as well be that the soul does actually exist but it's asleep not awake you just cannot have a conscious mind of some of whatever type and affirm the uh the scriptural teaching of the sleep of the dead well, that's it for today. Thanks, everyone, for writing in. Come on to restitudio.org if you'd like to add a comment on this. These were all comments in reference to Part 4, which was challenging conditional immortality. We'll see you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.